Thank you. Do keep that open. Um, okay, well, we saw yesterday um, in the first look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, to restore true love to his congregation. Some people have swerved away from living in love and faith, and Paul made it clear that to correct this, Timothy had to stay in Ephesus and counter the false teaching which had infected the church. And today we're going to look at that central part of chapter 1, um, the meat in the sandwich, so to speak, between verses 8 to 17. And these sometimes have been extracted from their, context, uh, from their context, often for good homiletical and theological purposes, but they make most sense, these verses, when we see them in the context of what Timothy was up against in Ephesus. They teach us how to live with law and grace which are both part of the gospel. So, um, again, i got two points. The first thing is, Paul says to Timothy, tell sinners the law. Tell them the law. Look again at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality enslavers liars perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed god with which i've been entrusted now why is he suddenly talking about the law the old testament law Well, it's because, isn't it, the the false teachers in Ephesus wanted to be teachers of the law, but they were fairly quirky in their use of it. True teaching of the law is a good and godly thing for Christians, but irrelevancies and trivialities, not so much. The law is good if you use it for its correct purpose, to restrain evildoing, not to provide fuel for foolishness. The law, he says here, is good. It is kalos in the Greek, beautifully good, well-functioning, perfectly suited to its purpose. Like when you put a bookcase together, so it seems an appropriate thing to talk about with all the books around us. When you put a bookcase together, and at the end you've put it all together, and you say, oh, that's good, that's good. It's going to do the job. Like creation, when God pronounced it good. It's the same word in the Septuagint. Except for that one time, of course, when when God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. Now, he's not saying there, is he, that creation was all of a sudden evil as opposed to good. That would be the other Greek word for good. Anyone remember what it is? Not you. Anyone else remember what it is? Agathos, yes, that's the other word, agathos for good. As in, um, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the agathos, evil and the good. So that's the other way of thinking about good. So if he's using that other word, kalos, he's saying that um, you know, creation, it's not quite finished yet. It's not perfect and complete and well-functioning yet, because there's no woman. 
He wasn't saying that without Eve, it was evil. Thank you. I worked hard on that one. Similarly, here, he's not saying that the law is morally good as such. I'm not saying it's not morally good, but that's not his point. He's making a comment on the usefulness of the law. It is fit for purpose. So use it for that purpose and not for some other purpose. You shouldn't use your new bookcase as a stepladder to get into the loft. That's not what it's for. It's not safe. Believe me, it won't end well. (laughs) And you shouldn't use your biro as a straw to uh, suck up your milkshake. Because that's not very good. Um, But it's great if you use it for writing letters to your bishop or something like that. Um, You shouldn't use a copy of Martin Davies' big fat book on bishops as a doorstop or for uh, fending off intruders, which I heard someone was doing recently. Um, But it is brilliant for explaining where bishops come from. It's good for that purpose. Don't take God's law and start using it to construct new theologies of speculation and genealogies and to lead people away from the truth. That is co-opting God's word for your own purposes rather than for his. So what is the law good for? Law, what is it good for? What is its lawful use? Well, Paul says it's not for the righteous but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly, the sinner, the unholy, the profane. Now elsewhere in, in his writings, Paul does use the law to teach ethics to Christians. So in Ephesians 6, for example, he tells children to obey their parents and he explicitly quotes from, which commandment is it? He quotes from the fifth commandment, well done. On the front row here. Um, He quotes from the fifth commandment to that effect because, you know, children obey your parents in the Lord is is an example of the fifth commandment. And it also contains a promise. So that use of the law is not excluded by Paul, but he's focusing here in 1 Timothy on the use of the law as a bridle to curb the devices and desires of our hearts, as we just prayed about As Luther puts it, the law reveals sinners and restrains them. And it's it's actually pretty basic stuff. If you've you've had good Christian catechism growing up, it's pretty basic stuff. He follows the general outline of the Ten Commandments. We really ought to know the Ten Commandments better, don't you think? Because they undergird so much of the ethical teaching in the New Testament. I'm sure you know all all of them, by heart, in the right order. The order is important. Uh, and, and Paul says here, doesn't he? I mean, look at it. The law is for those who strike their fathers and mothers, contravening the fifth commandment. It is for murderers who break the sixth commandment. It's for the sexually immoral and those who practice homosexuality, together smashing the seventh commandment against adultery I guess especially this week we should just pause there for a minute Um, it's interesting that he puts those two sexual sins together 
and says, you know, they are against the seventh commandment against adultery. So we've got pornoise, the sexually immoral, and arsenokoitis, men who sleep with men. That is Paul's application of the seventh commandment against adultery. There is nothing here in what he says about either of those two sexual sins being necessarily forced or abusive or exploitative sex. Don't really say that. It doesn't say that they're unloving sex. It doesn't say it's ritual prostitution or something like that. That's not the context. They're not mentioned. And it's not actually the way that these terms here are used in the universal Judeo-Christian rejection of these sexual sins. Paul's contemporaries, such as Philo uh, and others, all link sex outside of marriage, sorry, sex outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. <coughs> you have to say all these extra words nowadays, don't you? All of those are linked to the seventh commandment by other people at the time as well. So Paul's not doing something unusual here. Um, other Jews would recognise what, what he was doing. Uh, the word pornoise, the first one, a sexual immorality word, is, is a general, sort of catch-all sort of word. Uh, the the R- Roman Catholic commentators, Quinn and Wacker, I love, I love saying that. Has <laughs> anyone used that commentary? It's a, it's a great commentary, Roman Catholics, but big fat commentary on the pastoral epistles. And they show in, in that commentary that the term in biblical tradition, as they say, was understood generically of a man engaging in forbidden sexual conduct alone or with others, whether married or unmarried. These sexually immoral behaviours, well, actually, they may have all been permanent, faithful and stable, to coin a phrase. They may have been, but that's not the point, is it? They were immoral and against God's law. And as such, their permanence, faithfulness and stability could only aggravate their sinfulness not mitigate it it won't cut much ice with God on judgment day to say oh look Lord I faithfully kept on doing that thing you told me not to whether that's a a gay sin or a straight sin Erasmus has a very uh, piercing comment on this when he looks at this verse. He says, for whom was the law laid down? Truly, it was for those who are deaf to the law of nature and being without love are readily inclined to all mischief and are guided by their own lusts unless they're held back by the barrier of the law. And if the law suffers them to sin unpunished, they return by and by to their own inclinations and become the same openly as they were inwardly. See what he's saying? That without the ministry of the law, it is so easy to be guided by one's own inclinations and lusts and to end up indulging in mischief even against the law of nature. 
The next one on Paul's list there is enslavers or kidnappers. That is given as the example of breaking the, where are we up to? The eighth commandment. What was the eighth commandment again? It's the one against stealing. Thank you. Uh, The one against stealing. So the New Testament was always clearly against the slave trade, which was evil then and was evil centuries later when Africans kidnapped Africans to sell on to the Europeans who then transported them across the Atlantic. And it is evil now when people are held captive and forced to work against their will in modern slavery or in sex trafficking that contravenes God's law. But hang on a sec, is Paul actually saying that the false teachers in Ephesus are guilty of these particular sins? Is that what he's saying? And, and is he trying to tell them that they ought to be using the law to curb those sins? Maybe. He might be pointing out the hypocrisy of those who want to be teachers of the law and have that status, but don't use the law properly against their own sins. Calvin comments, It frequently happens that they who wish to be regarded as the greatest zealots of the law give evidence by their whole life that they are the greatest despisers of it. Or maybe he's, he's saying that these false teachers should be using the law to counter such sins in other people, in their society around them, in their community, rather than affirming everyone as already righteous and good and therefore not really in need of the law or repentance and the remedy of the cross. Because there's a lot of that about these days, isn't there? Affirmation, positivity, taking pride in who we are, in ourselves, rather than lamenting the profundity of our fall. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, of course. Cheap grace, said Bonhoeffer, is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. What a ministry that would be. Just imagine. Teaching people to forgive and accept themselves rather than seeing the perversity of their nature in the mirror of the law and flying to Christ for divine acceptance and cleansing in the gospel. I don't know what you would call that kind of ministry that did that but it doesn't seem to be the kind of ministry advocated by the Apostle Paul. Paul might also be focusing here, I guess, on the futility of these people's supposed theological erudition when they spend so much time looking at the law, but no time at all applying it to slavers or lying perjurers who break the ninth commandment and so on. These folks instead are using the law to go hunting for arcane details in genealogies or trendy new ways to twist the scriptures to mean something that they never did and forget what the 
what they're supposed to be doing with the law that they claim to be teachers of. All of this, says Paul, is contrary to sound doctrine. It is unwholesome and unhealthy. That's what he's saying. Whatever the false teachers themselves might claim. And of course, there are always going to be people who say that focusing on how sinful we are by doing that confession we had this morning, for example, that is psychologically damaging. It's bad for your mental health and your self-esteem to do that. But this is not, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I, Paul, have been entrusted. The glory of the gospel is that although I am more sinful than I ever imagined, we are also more loved by a gracious God than we could ever dream. So these sins that he's outlining here in in this verse, this is not gospel ethics, you know, disrespect for parents and authority in general, murdering people, either directly or indirectly by your angry words and tweets, having sex beyond what God designed it for, using other people for your own benefit and gratification, being economical with the truth and always spinning things. The blessed God, who is perfectly happy in himself and wants us to share his blessedness, has cursed all such things as that. That's part of the gospel message that Paul has been entrusted with by God. Uh, Calvin has a a great bit in one of his sermons on this passage, Um, not the commentary, his sermons, uh, where he preaches at this point against bad theological education. And how it leads to the imposition of erroneous liturgies in the church. Do you want to hear that? Okay, go back to Geneva. Ready? I'll try and channel my inner Calvin. I'll not do the French accent. Maybe later. When we choose not to be built up in faith and love, all we have is fickle superstition to enthuse and enthrall us but which, when all is said and done, have no basis excuse me, or substance. For those who fancy themselves as teachers occupy themselves with stupid problems devoid of serious instruction. So when men have racked their brains to become theologians, to use the papists' term, they will not only stammer, but will be struck dumb when it actually comes to preaching sermons. Why? Because their training has not fitted them for it. Like wizards, they have their secret law. Incantations, liturgies of one kind or another, you might say, which serve no practical purpose. Because God's word is regarded as too mean and ordinary a thing for these speculative experts. You will not use God's law to curb your wickedness. And yet you want to force everyone to observe this ceremony or that. I kind of sat up when I read that first thinking, whoa, 
is this preached in Geneva back in the you know 16th century? That's familiar, isn't it? So Paul says, tell sinners the law. They need it to know themselves properly and to see their need for the perfect Christ. And then in verse 12, he starts speaking about himself. This is the the second point. Let's have a look back at verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now my question always is, why does Paul suddenly start talking about himself? Why does he suddenly start giving us his testimony at this point? What's all that about? Um, It just seems quite random, doesn't it? If you think about it. I mean, I do think that verses 8 to 17 that we're particularly looking at today are a sort of digression until he gets back in verse 18 to talking directly about the charge that he's given to Timothy in verse 3 at the start of the letter. But these verses in the middle, the meat of the sandwich, as I've been saying, they are actually related to that charge and the nature of false teaching that's doing the rounds. Tell sinners the law is countering that misuse of the law. But now Paul says, tell sinners the law and preach our saviour. Preach our saviour. So the key is to see um, that you tell sinners the law in verses 8 to 11. And then in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christmas doesn't make any sense at all unless... People understand that we are sinners through and through. We need saving. That's why Christ Jesus came into the world. It wasn't just to identify with us in our suffering. It wasn't to bring abstract light into abstract darkness. It wasn't because he was lonely and we were lonely and let's get together. It wasn't just to give us a perfect moral example or some good teaching Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners the purpose of Christmas is Good Friday and Easter the incarnation cannot be divorced from the atonement the law says we're sinners and the gospel shows us the saviour I'm sure you've all preached that I think it's even more pointed than that Paul is actually saying here, preach my saviour. Preach my saviour. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners like Paul was. 
What kind of sinner was Paul? Verse 13, he was a blasphemer, he says. Just like those false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, at the end of the chapter, verse 20, who need to be taught not to blaspheme, defame God. Paul himself, he's saying, was that kind of sinner. He was a persecutor, he says. He used the law of the Lord so wrongly that he thought he was obeying it perfectly by persecuting the people of the Lord. I mean, how wrong can you get? Like Jesus warned, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Paul did that. Paul. He was an insolent opponent of the gospel and the preachers of the gospel. He even approved of the death of Stephen and looked after the coats of those who closed their ears to what Stephen was preaching and they stoned that early martyr to death. Paul was there. He approved. Is it too much then to say that Paul desired to be a teacher of the law without understanding what he was saying or the things about which he made such confident assertions? That he swerved himself from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. He had made a shipwreck of his faith, just like the false teachers in the C of E, the church of Ephesus. But verse 14, notice, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's own salvation is an example, not just of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Although it's gloriously that, isn't it? He is actually an example of the salvation of a false teacher. That is his testimony. God is patient, even with people like that, who twist the scriptures and misuse the law and undermine the gospel and persecute his people, God can save them and appoint them to his service so that they go from being false teachers to faithful servants. So I think Timothy is being told not just to shut these false teachers up, but to tell them a gospel, tell them the gospel in a direct and applied way. They are on the wrong track and need to repent. They need a Damascus Road encounter with the risen and ascended Lord and to realise how wrong they have been. I think that explains why Paul starts talking about himself and his testimony in the middle of a chapter that is all about silencing false teachers. He's saying to Timothy, charge these people not to teach heterodoxy in the C of E. Don't give them a platform for that 
incoherent and unbiblical nonsense that they're spouting. Don't appoint them. Don't fund their ministries. But don't forget that the gospel is for them too. Gospel discipline will hand such people over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. It doesn't tolerate their errors or permit them to continue. But gospel patience also preaches the mercy and grace of God to such people. Because maybe God isn't finished with them yet. Maybe there is a second act to their story. If God can save the most famous example of a false teaching persecutor of God's people, then why shouldn't there be hope for Hymenaeus and Alexander? And why shouldn't we pray for Jane Ozan and Steve Chalk and Stephen Croft and John Inge, Jeffrey John, Jeremy Pemberton, Andrew Forshew Kane, Stephen Cottrell. People like this who oppose the gospel and oppose those who teach it, we must gently correct in the hope that God will grant them repentance and a knowledge of the truth so that they can come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Our gentleness in correction, though, should be tempered by respect in those cases where those people have senior roles of honour within the church. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't be clear and bold, as Timothy is told to be as a bishop, in refuting the false teachers in his patch. So I think that's the message of of 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 17. Tell sinners the law. That is part of our charge as ministers of the gospel and part of the charge to counter false teaching. Give it to them straight, without partiality, and never offer cheap grace. But this passage also shows us that we must must preach Paul's saviour too. Not just the Jesus who saves the unlovely and the most obvious sinners, but the Jesus who had mercy and grace and patience towards Paul, the most egregious false teacher and insolent opponent of the gospel who ever lived. If he can be saved, who else one day might become a trophy of God's grace in response to our persistent prayers? Do you have faith like that, to pray prayers like that as a pastor? That God would help you to protect your flock from false teachers and give you the strength and the courage to do it and also to pray for those outrageous heretics themselves who are causing you such problems. That God would have mercy on their souls and forgive them for their ignorance and often malevolent hostility to his work. And, I mean, maybe such people are listening on the tape or something, or someone here might be 
toying with the false doctrine that is blowing through the church right now. Maybe your conscience is uneasy with your position on issues of the day or with your own personal conduct in these areas. You may feel the word of the law condemning you and so feel like running away into something that's more affirming and more comfortable. Through 1 Timothy 1, the Spirit is saying to you now, don't double down on your mistakes. Don't just think about losing face. Come back to Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners, even those who have rebelled against his word and kicked against the goads pretty hard. It is hard to go against the impulse that is driving you on, but ask for the Spirit's help to do so, and it will be forthcoming. Repent. Call on the Lord while he is near, and you too could be like Paul, an example to the world of the immortal God's kindness. Now to him be all honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a moment of reflection.